The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. At Exodus uh, 20, the Ten Commandments, beginning at verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. Uh, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we're looking tonight at the Eighth Commandment, You Shall Not Steal. And what I want to do with you this evening is to lay behind this commandment a theology of possession. I want you to understand how God looks at possessions, how he looks at human ownership of materials. Because really what this is, is an upholding of human ownership. That God entrusts possessions to people, and other people are not to violate that possession. People are free to give to whomever they choose, but another may not take from the person without their consent, those possessions that have been entrusted to them. So behind this command, a simple command, you shall not steal, is a deep and rich theology of material possession. And so what I want to do is just kind of unfold that in a biblical sense, why it is that we say that stealing is wrong, why uh, we possess certain things, and why we feel violated when someone comes and takes from us what is ours without us giving it to them freely. I remember still, like it was yesterday, uh, an occasion a number of years ago, middle of the 80s. It was uh, middle of December, and uh, as usual, I had not done most of my Christmas shopping. I don't know if I work best under pressure or just I'm a procrastinator. I like to think of myself well, so I guess I just work best under pressure. But uh, I had a huge wad of cash in my in my wallet, big cash, and that was the days when I wasn't really using credit cards at all and paying for everything in cash. And so I went to a crowded bookstore in Boston, I remember this, and lots of coming and going, lots of bustling, and I was standing in line to buy the things uh, that I had chosen. And uh, as I frequently do, I was patting my wallet to be sure it was there, and it was, patted it, it was there, patted it, and it was gone. 
I mean, and it was just uh, a few seconds after the last time I patted it. So I saw somebody just a few steps from me who had just kind of bumped into me or brushed into me lightly. There was zero doubt in my mind that he had stolen my wallet. None. I mean, you know how you have some doubts about certain things? Well, I had no doubt about this because I had just patted it, bumped, gone, he took it. No doubt about it. So I went up to him naively and quietly and said, listen, I know you just took my wallet. I want it back. You give me my wallet back. I won't say a word. I'll just go back and stand in line and that'll be it. Well, that wasn't it. He started yelling and screaming and accusing me of all kinds of terrible things. Well, you could order a pin drop. This is bustling, big bookstore in Boston and everything became silent and they're all looking at the two of us. And he was aggressive and yelling at me and saying I was blaming him and all that sort of stuff. And nobody knew what to do. We were all standing there, motionless. And uh, so finally, the assistant manager of the shop, knowing that this was bad for business, asked the two of us if we would come in the back. And uh, so we went back and he looked at me defiantly, this guy. And uh, he said, you can search me. There's nothing on me. Well, there wasn't anything on I asked later how it was done, and basically they work in pairs, and they take your wallet and pass it immediately to somebody else, and then if there's any trouble, they raise a big ruckus, they are searched, there's nothing on them, and there it goes. Well, it went on for about 20 minutes, and I realized I was going to get nothing, nowhere. He literally had nothing on him, no identification, nothing. He didn't have a coin in his pocket. I thought he was amazingly clean for a human being. I mean, I usually have something in my pocket, but he had nothing. Um, and so he, uh, he was off. So right before he left, I looked him in the eye. And I said, you know, God is against stealing. And in my wallet, you'll find um, a tract explaining um, how you can have a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ. (laughs) I had no idea where it was, but I knew he knew where my wallet was. I have no idea if he ever came to faith in Christ. I sure hope so. But I know the feeling I had of realizing that was my all of my Christmas cash. That was it. And so um, how violated I felt by that. And how wrong it was what he did to me. I hope something good came of it. I hope some conviction from the moment when I looked him in the eye. He couldn't look me in the eye for long. I noticed that. Um, And I thought behind this is this commandment from God. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. You see, God upholds my case. He upheld it. That was my money. Now, if I had wanted to give it to him, that was my choice. But I hadn't made that choice. Maybe if he had made a need uh, known to me or something, I might have been generous toward him. But we didn't go through that. He just took it from me. Just took it. And uh, the idea is that that money was mine. And God would say so. And the money that's in your wallet right now is yours. And so are your cars and so is your house. It's yours. For a while. Okay? Because behind that is a basic idea that God makes all things. And he ultimately owns all things. In Revelation 4.11, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So every material possession in the universe is God's because he made it. He owns it all. God owns all things. Deuteronomy 10:14 it says, "To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it." Did you hear that? The earth and everything in it is God's. He doesn't just own the cattle in a thousand hills. That's just so that we can have some access to his ownership. He owns everything on this planet. He owns everything in the highest heavens. He owns it all because he made it. 
It says in First Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. First Chronicles 29.11. And Ezekiel 18.4, it says, For every living soul belongs to me. Okay, not only the stuff on earth, but every living soul is God's. For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. And that's in a whole big discussion there. But that God clearly states ownership over all things. And then in, in Psalm 60, verse 6 through 8, it says, God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel, parcel out Shechem and me- measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, and upon Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. I mean, he could keep going. He could, he could say, Durham is mine, Raleigh is mine, all of it. Apex is mine, North Carolina is mine, the U.S. is mine, you are mine, it's all mine. And he says that again and again, doesn't he? And so basically the idea is that God created all things, and secondly, that God owns all things ultimately. Therefore, all things, the scripture says, will go back to him someday. Everything goes back to God. It says this in Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. There's a lot of motion in that verse, isn't there? From him and through him and back to him are all things. And someday he's going to get it all back. All of it is his. Now, here's the key step. God created all things. He owns all things. It's all going back to him. But in the meantime, he entrusts it. He entrusts things to created beings as stewards. He entrusts things to people. And that's where we get the idea of private ownership. In Psalm 115, 16, it says, The heavens, highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. And he did. He entrusted it to us to rule over it. Uh, earlier today, we read in Genesis 15 and verse 7, didn't have the time to go through it, but it was read, Mac, what he read it, and it said this, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. The promised land was going to be a possessed land. The Israelites would possess it. They would own it. It would be theirs. And that's just a symbol of an entire theology of ownership. Your clothing is yours. Your money is yours. Your jewelry is yours. These are your things. They're ultimately God's, but he entrusts those possessions, those things, to created beings. Now, because they are ultimately God's, you therefore only have them on loan, in effect, right? You are, therefore, stewards. The proper term is that you are stewards of material possessions. Now, those stewards own those things in regard to one another, In other words, my stuff's mine and not yours. And your stuff is yours and not mine. Unless you're you're married, of course, and then it gets very confusing. I'm not sure, you know. Christy's stuff is hers depending on what it is. You know what I'm saying? I don't want it, okay? But there's other things she has that I think we kind of both have and both mutually own. Okay, you understand how it works. But in other words, the stewards who must give an account to God, we'll talk about that in a moment, we have that stuff in our possession and it's our stuff until we give it up. Okay, we own those things and they are ours. You know, uh, Jesus touched on this lightly in John 10:12. 12. 
the good shepherd uh, passage. And there it says, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. He's contrasting the owner of the sheep from a hired hand, right? The hired hand doesn't care anything about the sheep because he's only hired hand. He doesn't own the sheep. But the owner of the sheep has a personal stake in the sheep. And so we have this theology or this principle of private ownership. They belong to a created being. Now, possession or private ownership is a God-ordained boundary line. You understand what I'm saying? It's a God-ordained boundary line. God set up boundaries. And all the stuff inside the boundaries, all of it's yours. Now, you can pray the prayer of Jabez and enlarge your boundaries if you'd like. But whatever is inside the boundaries, now that's your stuff. And everything outside the boundaries isn't yours. God may give you someday some of the things outside the boundaries, but the stuff inside, now that's yours. An interesting passage in Deuteronomy. Take a minute and turn there. Deuteronomy 2. I found this fascinating. As I was going through Deuteronomy when I was in Japan, studying it intently and just learning so many good things, they were wandering in the wilderness and they... uh, They're passing through the territory of certain other nations, other people. And in Deuteronomy 2.9, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Do you see that? Deuteronomy 2.9. What is God telling the Israelites there? Yeah, you are my chosen people, but that doesn't mean you can go anywhere you want. And it doesn't mean the whole world is yours. I do have a, a uh, promised land which you will someday come and possess. But this isn't it. In effect, this land that you're about to pass through is Moab's promised land. They own it. And you are not to violate that. There's a boundary around it and it's not going to be yours. I've got a different land in mind for you. Now, he says the same thing later in this chapter uh, a few other times. And I'm not going to go through each one. But you see the idea. The idea is of a boundary line. And inside that boundary line, those are your things. Now, this becomes very clear in the book of Joshua. Joshua is a little bit tough to read after all the exciting battles are over, right? From a certain point in Joshua on, it's nothing but boundary lines, right? Who gets what? And the boundary line runs over between some oak trees and down a hill and into a valley and up over a, a certain other mountain that nobody knows where it is. And that's the boundary line for such and such a tribe. And then, you know what I'm talking about. Tribe after tribe after tribe, they get these boundary lines by lot. They cast the lot. And the lot falls in a certain place and that's where the boundary lines come. Well, that's a symbol for this entire idea of private possession. That you have certain boundary lines and those are set by God. And everything inside it Well, that's yours. Now, possession, private possession, is a blessing from God. It's a good thing that God gives you. It's good to have good things. It's good to have warm clothing for a cold day. It's good to have a car so that you can travel about. It's good to have a house, a roof over your your head. Uh, It's good to have enough to eat. You know, it's good to have a watch that you can look at and tell, tell time by. You know, there's a lot of these things. And these possessions are always seen in Scripture to be a blessing from God. If you look in Genesis, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to Genesis 26, 12, and 13. It's speaking of Isaac, and it said that Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold. That's incredible. He got a hundredfold back from what he planted because the Lord blessed him. 
The man became rich. We're talking about Isaac now. And his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. This is considered to be a blessing from God. Now, we know that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and that it's very hard for rich to enter the kingdom of heaven and that possessions and wealth can be very dangerous. But the basic idea of possessions is that they are a blessing from God, although you have to be careful. Now... If God owns all things, created all things, all things are going back to him. If he establishes these boundary lines and within them, that's our stuff. But it's still really God's. That means that we are, as I've mentioned, stewards. And the consistent lesson of stewardship is that someday we must give an account for these things. We have to answer to God for them. And that means that to some degree, these things are given from God with a string attached. He has the right to take them back. Job knew this. Remember, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken back. He has the right to do that. He has the right to do that. But we see this account in Matthew 25, 14 through 21. If you want to turn there and look, you'll see this familiar passage. But the uh, passage of the stewards giving an account. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. This is Matthew 25:14. What do you learn from that verse? Well, it's the, it's the master's stuff still. Do you see that? He entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then, then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Do you see that? This is what I'm talking about. All of your possessions really belong to God, and he will ask you to give an account for what you do with everything. All of it is his. And you're merely stewards. And so therefore you're going to give an account. And so the master returns and settles accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And so there we have uh, the principle of accountability for stewardship. However, in the meantime, other stewards, other servants must not take your stuff. Just because God owns it all, just because all of us are going to give it back to God and give an account, does not mean we can jump over the boundary fence and take somebody else's things. That is stealing. It's interesting to me that Christ, in his days on earth, never stole. He never took anything from another person. Now, we could take the theology and say, you know, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. He could have taken anything, right? All of it is his, right? But in his days as the son of man on earth, he obeyed the law of Moses, including Exodus 20:15, which we're studying tonight. He never stole a thing. And therefore, he lived a very poor lifestyle. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In uh, Luke 8:3. It says that Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many other women were helping to support Jesus and his disciples out of their own private means. And so Jesus got his money as a donation from a a number of women there in Luke 8. Jesus lived hand to mouth. You know, he's walking through the grain fields with his disciples on the Sabbath, and they're plucking heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands and eating them. This is what the poor people did. Jesus never took a single thing that didn't belong to him, even though he was God and could have had all of it. 
You know, an interesting story in this, look in, in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we see Jesus dealing with private ownership here in an interesting way. As they approached Jerusalem, it says, and came to Bethphage and Bethany uh, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. In other words, I'm only going to borrow it in order to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. When I've fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, I'll give it back. Is okay? My feeling is he had already made this arrangement ahead of time. And so the disciples went. They found it just as the Lord had said. Uh, they found a colt outside the street tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? Reasonable question. Are you a colt thief? No, not at all. They answered, as Jesus had told them to, the Lord needs it. And this phrase released the cult into Jesus' use. He's only borrowing it, and he gives it back. Do you see how meticulously concerned he is to not violate boundaries on private possession? And he's the son of man. He's, he's the son of God. He could have had anything he wanted. All of it was his. And yet he respected those boundary lines. Now, a very, very important passage on this whole issue is in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. Take a minute and look there if you would. This is incredibly important and vital. Acts 4. Okay. It says there in Acts 4, verse 32. Look at the end of the chapter, Acts 4, 32. This is talking about the remarkable aspects of the life of the early church. And there was another statement about this earlier in Acts 2, but we're going to zero in on Acts 4. And there it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I want to put that statement into context. Are we saying that there's a pure form of kind of communism here in the early church, that there was no such thing as private ownership? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I think uh, Marx and Lenin and other thinkers coming from Germany as they were, were very well aware of this example in the early church. And I think they attacked the concept of private ownership. They wanted instead a sense of collective ownership. They had, communists had collective farms where there was farm equipment and everyone kind of collectively shared it. And then the harvest, everyone shared. And uh, we've seen the effects of communism economically. Uh, just like the workers used to say in the factory, they're talking about why the Russian factories never produced goods that competed with the West. And you ask the workers and they said, well... They pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. So it's a good arrangement. And so it went for decades in the communist areas. But the idea was that private ownership was an evil. It was something that had to be gotten rid of. Well, was the church truly and purely communistic? It's an interesting idea. Well, what does it say here? It says no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. All right? Uh, verse 34 in Acts 4, it says, There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. You see what's happening here. They're selling their own stuff, and of their own choice, freely, gladly, they're bringing it to the apostle and putting it at the apostles' feet, signifying a kind of submission to apostolic authority and saying, Give this to anybody who needs it. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles named Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here we have Barnabas, a beautiful example of this kind of generosity. Well, let's keep reading in Acts 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's the key statement here. This is very important. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Now, see that statement? What is Peter's attitude about the field? It it was yours before you sold it. But he's not finished yet. He's very precise here. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Now, what does that teach you? Peter's attitude is every step of the line until you released it, it was yours to do whatever you want. Now, when you brought it and put it at the apostles' feet, you released it. You gave it. That's what giving is. But it's something you did because it was your stuff. Now, I ask again, was there this pure communism in the early church? Absolutely not. What was going on instead is that the Holy Spirit had worked such a spirit of generosity and love among the brothers and sisters there that they didn't care so much about private rights. They said, if I have it and you need it, it's yours. It's just the Good Samaritan. If there's anything I have that you need more than I do, I'm going to give it to you. But I'm still the one giving it, you see? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What is Peter saying? There's nothing wrong with you selling a a field and giving half of it to the poor. Nothing. As a matter of fact, it's very generous. The problem is that you lied about it. That's the issue. The issue is the lie, not the holding back some of the money. Now, I think this is very important. And it upholds the very thing we've been teaching this evening, namely the concept of private ownership. Now, the problem with communism is that it really is thievery, isn't it? It's robbery. Because the government comes with its power and its strength and takes everything you own away from you, whether you want to give it or not. It makes everybody on an equal footing. And because nobody wants to do that, the government has to be like an armed camp. And so it was in the communist countries. No freedom because people could not be trusted to be this generous and loving. Frankly, they weren't this generous and loving. And it was never going anywhere. And so we needed a strong central government to come and make people be generous and loving to each other. Well, that doesn't really work too well now, does it? And so you have the Berlin Wall forcing people to be generous and loving. You know, it doesn't really make much sense, but so they tried for decades. The only time that it's ever really occurred has been when the Spirit of God moved in the early church and people generously of their own choice gave because they wanted to. And so we have a very elaborate and clear theology of private possession here in the Scripture. Now, ultimately, ultimately, there are heavenly rewards. And here's where we get into the true theology of possession. It says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will what? Inherit the earth. Isn't that incredible? The meek will inherit the earth. Or in 1 Corinthians 3, 21, Paul says so powerfully, So then, no more arguing about men. All things are yours. Now, what an incredible idea that is. All things are yours. And then this one, turn and look at Luke 16, 10 through 12. Luke 16, 10 through 12. It says there, Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted also with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest also with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, 
who will trust you with true riches. Now that's incredible, isn't it? There's worldly wealth and then there's real wealth. You see how Jesus thinks so differently from us. Worldly wealth and true riches. But don't stop there. Read the next verse. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now that is intriguing. Does that mean there'll come a time in which God will just entrust us with possessions that we can call truly our own? Well, that seems to be the implication of Jesus' statement. Right now, we're on probation in our sin nature, in our earthly handling of material wealth. We're being tested. And if you're faithful with this little, namely how you handle earthly stuff, then you'll be faithful with handling more responsibility. And therefore, I think that there is a whole world waiting for us. A new heavens, a new earth, the home of righteousness. And there there will be varying responsibilities. And there it seems in Luke 16, 12, he's saying, you know, you're a steward now. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you possessions of your own? I think that's intriguing. Namely, eternal wealth that can never, never will be taken from you. Now, all we've done so far today, tonight, is establish a biblical theology of possession. Next time, God willing, we're going to look at... Uh, the thieves and robbers and bandits and other stealer people uh, from the Bible and learn from them different ways that we can steal. And from that, we're also going to take a spiritual application to the spiritual thieving that the devil's been doing and the ultimate thieving that Jesus does, so to speak. He uses this terminology when he says that he can tie up the strong man and plunder or rob his house. And uh, we'll talk more about that next time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.